Well, everyone, thanks for being with us today. Glad you are all here. And thanks for joining us as we think and talk about some of the most challenging and personal uh, subjects we could be thinking about today, things that affect our lives in very deep and personal ways. Um, when I was back in student ministry, we used to joke that if we ever felt like we were losing the kids' interest and engagement, all we had to do was announce a series on love, sex, and dating, and we'd fill the room again. And often we would. So I don't know if we have more folks uh, with us here today than usual, but whatever the reason, I'm glad you're here. Now I'm sitting down today because I'd like this to feel a little more like a conversation than a lecture. So I know you can't talk back to me, but uh, I want you to know I've done lots of listening in preparation for this message, listening to books and podcasts, workshops, seminars, and many, many conversations with many people over many years including people whose views and life experiences are very different than mine. So all that goes into the mix here. And even though you can't talk back to me today, if you would like to talk back to me, if you hear something you struggle with or don't understand or, or feel hurt by, please, I would want you to reach out to me and any one of our pastors. And we'd love to continue the conversation personally. And uh, I really do mean that. Now, just heads up to the parents. We're going to have a pretty frank conversation here today. So... If you haven't had the talk yet, then I don't know, it might be over some of your kids' heads if they're here. Uh, but people are talking about this everywhere in our culture, and we sure need to be able to talk about it here in the church. So in spite of how challenging these topics are, I am really hopeful about where we're headed today. Let me tell you why. Many times over the years as a pastor, I have found myself sitting with a married couple who's struggling in their marriage. Maybe they're facing a crisis that they can't seem to get past, or sometimes it's just a slow drift that has them wondering if they really can or want to stay together. So after hearing them out, trying to feel their pain, I'll, I'll often say to them, tell me about the beginning of your relationship. How did you meet? What were some of the fun things you did together? What did you find attractive about each other? Now, usually things get off to a slow start. They hem and haw and look at the ground, but after a few minutes, they they begin to talk and they talk about their first date and they laugh a little bit and they say out loud things that they like and appreciate about each other. Sometimes they might reach out and touch the other or move a little closer on the couch. And when it goes that way, I'll say something like, in the beginning of your relationship, something good and beautiful brought you together. And that good and beautiful thing is still there waiting to be rediscovered. That's what I'd like to do today. I'd like to help us rediscover something. Because as I survey the landscape of marriage and sexuality and friendship in our culture, I see a lot of disappointment and heartache and pain. Nearly two-thirds of Americans say they feel lonely on a regular basis. The marriage rate in our country continues to decline as more and more people decide not to get married or to put off getting married. Many of the mental health issues that people are dealing with today are, are associated with sexual hurt and with disappointment or the isolation or the bullying or rejection that often goes along with that. Increasing numbers of people, young people in particular, are describing themselves as asexual, experiencing little or no sexual attraction. Some are just swearing off sex and romance because it comes with so much pain and disappointment. So today, 
as I might do with a married couple, I'd like to take us back to our beginnings, to the very earliest days of marriage, sexuality, and friendship. I'd like us to rediscover the goodness and the beauty and the joy of these gifts given to us by a wise and loving God. I'd, I'd like to cast a vision, God's vision, for deep friendships, for happy and healthy marriages, for healthy and satisfying expressions of our sexuality. So as we've been doing this fall, I'd like to take us back again to, to our beginnings, to the book of Genesis, to the very beginning of, of God's work in, in, in the world and, and to what he had in mind when he set all of these things in motion. So final point I'll make before I dive in here is that we're a large and diverse congregation. And so you'll find a variety of perspectives on, on these topics and many other topics. And, and we're okay with that. What I'm going to present today is what I would call the majority view of the congregation and the view of the senior leadership here at Grace Chapel. Now, you probably won't be surprised to find out it's the historic Christian view of sexuality and marriage. What I hope you will be surprised by is the tone and the reasoning and the invitation that accompanies that view. And I'll ask you to hang with me till the end, okay? Let's get started. We're gonna jump in at chapter two, verse seven. And the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, back in chapter one, we learned that God created humankind in his image, male and female. We got the big picture view. But here in chapter two, we zoom in and we get a close-up of that creation. And notice the craftsmanship, the intentionality around the creation of the man. God formed the man, we're told, like a sculptor working with a piece of clay. And we're gonna find that same kind of attentiveness when we get to the creation of the woman a little bit later. The thing I wanna point out here is that the man is given both material and spiritual existence. He's given a body formed from the dust of the earth, and he's given a spirit breathed into him by the living God. And it's when those two things come together, body and soul, that the man becomes a living being, a human being. And what that means for our conversation today is that our bodies matter. Our bodies are given to us by God. They're essential to our humanity and to our individual identities as unique image bearers of God. Our bodies are good. Even the sexual parts of our bodies are good, given to us by a good God. It means that we are whole persons, body and soul, so that what we do with our bodies affects our souls. It affects us not just on a physical level, but an emotional and even a spiritual level. And how we treat other people's bodies affects them on a physical and emotional and spiritual level. So we'll talk more about sexuality in a minute, but right here from the beginning, we learn that there's no such thing as casual sex. Sexual intimacy affects us on a deep and personal level. And so when we engage in it, casually, or when we tell ourselves it's just sex. We're not just lying to ourselves. We're diminishing our humanity and the humanity of whoever we might be with. So our bodies matter, 
And what we do with them can be a source of great joy and health and vitality or pain and disappointment. So with that foundational truth in mind, let's get to what I'm going to call the beginning of friendship. The beginning of friendship. Verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, this is the first time that anything in creation has been called not good. And the Hebrew wording here suggests, uh, suggests something that's incomplete, not yet fully formed, not yet functional. Now, we typically read this verse as if it's about marriage, and it is, but it's about much more than that. In the verses that follow, God, God brings the animals before Adam and Eve, before Adam, rather, as, as if they might be a solution to the alone problem. Now, we have lots of pet lovers in the room here, I understand. We know that animals can, can provide companionship. Animals can actually assist in, in the work we do as human beings and, and assist people on a personal level. But none of them fit the bill of being a suitable helper for Adam. Because that expression, suitable helper, means corresponding to. In other words, Adam needed someone he could relate to on his level, someone who would share his intellectual and emotional and spiritual capacities. In the words of one of my favorite commentators, Adam will not live until he loves, giving himself to another on his own level. And while Eve will be the first person that Adam relates to, she won't be the last as they begin to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with other people. So we learn from the beginning is that we were designed for relationships. We were made to connect with other people in meaningful, productive, life-giving ways. Now the first relationship will be husband and wife. But many other relationships will follow. Soon they'll be parent and child, and then brother and sister, and then neighbor and partner and stranger and friend. And, and here's the thing. All those relationships in different ways reflect something different about the nature of our God, who Scripture tells us is father and sometimes mother, but also husband and also helper, and also brother, and also lover, and also friend. So that statement, it is not good for the man to be alone, isn't just about marriage. It's about the wide variety of meaningful relationships that we're invited into, every one of them reflecting something different about the nature and the character of God. Which means you don't have to be married, you don't have to be sexually active, in order to live a fully satisfied, rich human experience and to, and to experience deep, satisfying, intimate relationships. Jesus was a single celibate man and lived, one of the, lived the most relationally rich life that the world has ever seen. So we've considered the beginning of friendship. Now let's consider the beginning of gender. Okay, we're gonna drop down to verse 20. But for Adam... No suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. 
The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. So we're told here and back in chapter one that when God created humankind, he created two kinds of human beings, male and female. But is that, is that a reference to their sex or to their gender? Now, the ancient readers would not have made any distinction between those two things. But in our current context, we, we tend to distinguish between sex and gender. When we talk about a person's biological sex, it's usually manifested in their physical anatomy. But then their psychological gender describes how they feel about themselves, how they relate to the world around them in terms of being masculine or feminine. Now, having said that, I want to be a little careful about slipping into simplistic stereotypes of masculine and feminine, as in men like trucks and power tools and women like shopping and conversation. Because I will tell you that in our house, Karen likes power tools and I like shopping. <laughs> She's not threatened when I shop for her and I'm not threatened when she brings out the power tools. Maybe a little bit. But you get the point. There are a variety of ways to express and describe masculinity and femininity, and we all have a whole spectrum of how we express those two things. And often our gender seems to be culturally defined. But we want to be careful not to reduce gender to purely a, a, a social or, a, or cultural context. Science tells us there are biological differences between males and females that shape the way we feel about ourselves and the way we relate to the world around us. Differences in hormones, differences in skeletal structure, differences in muscle, muscle fiber, in cognitive functioning. So every, every cell in the human body contains the DNA that typically identifies that body as a male or a female. So gender is both a biological and a psychological construct. Now, typically, a person's biological sex and psychological gender are aligned. And a person sees themselves and feels comfortable relating to the world as male or female. But sometimes, for a variety of reasons, sex and gender are not aligned. Sometimes there are biological, physiological reasons a person's anatomy isn't fully differentiated or some chromosomal abnormalities. Sometimes there's a psychological condition described as gender dysphoria in which a person has typical male or female anatomy, but on the inside, they feel like the opposite gender or like no gender. And sometimes for environmental or cultural or experiential reasons, a person finds themselves questioning their identity or uh, identifying themselves as something other than their biological sex, trans or non-binary or queer or another term like that. It's a small percentage of the population, but it's millions and millions of people. It has to be a challenging way to live. Imagine waking up every day feeling like a boy, but heading out into the door and having to relate to the and, 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 and having to look like and act like and be treated like a girl. How challenging would that be? How would you describe yourself? Who could you tell? 
how would they respond if you did tell them? The truth is, we can't imagine how challenging and isolating that kind of experience can be. We do know, we have come to recognize how isolating, how, how vulnerable, how the, the bullying that can often go along with those kinds of feelings. Which means the church, our church, needs to be a safe place for any child or teenager or adult to, to, to bring their gender questions and identity. Bring them to someone who will care, someone who will listen to them, someone who will believe them, someone who will love them, someone who will point them to Jesus. And I want you to know our children's ministry, our student ministry, we're committed to providing support and care to families and kids who are having that life experience and we're doing our best to provide the tools and training to do that. The good news, encouraging news, is that most of the time, about 80% of the time, some studies say, those feelings of misalignment and dysphoria usually resolve themselves by the time a person reaches young adulthood. The really good news is that God is able to meet every person where they are, as they are, and help them to find rest in their identity as a deeply loved, image-bearing child of God. So we've considered the beginning of friendship, and we've learned that we can't bear God's image alone. And aren't we glad about that? Aren't we glad for the varieties of people who, who enrich our lives with their unique reflections of God's image? And then we consider the beginning of gender. And we learn that it takes both male and female to fully reflect the nature of God. And aren't we glad about that? Doesn't it make life way more interesting to have men and women in our lives and those who are still sorting out their gender identity questions? So now let's consider the beginning of sexuality. To do that, we have to go back to that phrase that's used twice in the scripture, verse 18 and then verse 20, a suitable helper. Now we pointed out that the Hebrew word carries the idea of corresponding to. So Eve was a suitable helper for Adam because she was like him in very important ways. But that suitable helper word also carries the idea of opposite to meaning that Eve was a suitable helper for Adam because she was different from him in some really wonderful ways. I mean, it had to be interesting for Adam as the animals are paraded by him in a search for a suitable helper. But when Eve shows up, he says, now that's what I'm talking about. Not exactly. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. See, he's delighting in both the similarities, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, but also in the differences. She's got to be called something different than me. She shall be called woman. We get a sense that he's delighting in who she is, in their similarities and their differences. And those differences and similarities make possible a mysterious and powerful union that we read about in verses 24 and 25. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. 
Some years ago, Rob Bell wrote a book called Sex God. Pretty catchy title. And he points out in that book that our word for sex comes from the Latin word saccare, which, which means to, to separate or to disconnect from the whole. It shows up in our English words like section or dissect. So our sexuality then is about our disconnection from one another as male and men and women and as human beings but it's also about our longing to reconnect with one another as men and women and as human beings. And that connection is, is, is vividly expressed in the sexual union between a man and a woman, but that drive, that longing for connection actually extends to and energizes all the relationships of our lives. Uh, we went to the Taylor Swift Eras Tour movie the other night. I know, I know. Barbie and Taylor Swift, what's gotten into Pastor Brian? I don't know. I just had to know what the buzz was about. Packed out stadiums, hundreds of thousands of people across the country, something we'd never seen before. Well, you know what the buzz is all about? Aside from the music and the costumes and the production, which is all terrific. The buzz is about relationships. She sang something like 40 songs and almost every single one was about connection or disconnection, about longing, about loving, about losing, about friendship, about family, about getting together, about breaking up, about getting back together and about never, ever, ever getting back together again. It's a celebration of, of an expression of how we're wired as human beings to want to connect, connect in deeply personal ways. This powerful energy that runs through our veins every day, drawing us to be close and to be connected. And aren't we glad? God could have designed us for asexual reproduction, would have made things a lot simpler, but a lot less interesting. So even though our sexuality comes with risks and temptations and sometimes heartache, aren't we glad we're wired this way to be drawn to other people and to, be, to long for deep and meaningful relationships, romantic and otherwise? Now, typically, a person is attracted to someone of the opposite sex, but sometimes a small percentage of the population, for a variety of reasons, a person finds themselves attracted to members of the same sex. Somewhere around three to seven percent of the population, they tell us, they tell us, identify as gay or lesbian or bisexual. Again, small percentage, maybe, but millions of people, friends and family, people we love, made in the image of God. That same sex desire or attraction or orientation doesn't make a person any more sinful or any less loved than a person who's attracted to the opposite sex. It's not our desires or our temptations or our orientations that make us sinful. Scripture tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin. It's what we do with our desires that matters. 
and, and that sexual union God desired us, designed us for is good in so many wonderful ways. It's a source of great pleasure, for one thing. It's available to, to people of every class and every culture. It's incredibly intimate for another thing. Adam and his wife were naked and felt no shame. Nothing hidden, fully known, has a powerful bonding effect. They tell us that hormones released during intimacy actually help form attachment to the other person. And of course, it has the potential to bring new life into the world, making us literal co-creators with God. What a remarkable gift. And because sexual intimacy is, is so intimate, so bonding, so powerful, God's designed it for the safety and security of marriage, which we'll talk about in a minute. Before we do, we have to recognize one more thing about our sexuality. Not as obvious as the others, but really, really profound and important. Again, verse 24, and they will become one flesh, scripture says. Now that word translated one is the Hebrew word echad, which, which describes something that's one, but with multiple parts. It's of course the same word used in that foundational declaration in the Old Testament, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So are you catching the significance of this? Sexual union isn't just about pleasure and bonding and procreation. It's also about a celebration of the oneness of the triune God. One God existing in three persons. Sexual union is ultimately about two existentially different people, male and female, coming together to form one body and soul. So as I understand the scriptures, this is where sexual intimacy with someone of the same sex falls short of God's design. Sex between two people of the same sex can be intimate and bonding and, and, and pleasurable. Those are all good things. But it can't be a cod in the biblical sense of two different kinds of beings coming together as one new thing. Now, I realize that stirs up all kinds of questions and challenges. I realize not everyone will understand the scripture that way. But I wanted to articulate that point because I want, I want people to understand that the historic Christian view on sexuality isn't just a matter that, that, that God has arbitrarily decided to say no to something. It's, it's our belief that, my belief, that God has designed us for something so profound, something that reflects his very nature and being as one God. And so I believe that we honor God and we bless each other when we experience that intimacy in the bond of, of marriage, Christian marriage, and when we refrain from it outside of marriage. So, Again, there's a lot more we could say. Lots of yeah, buts, and what ifs, and different ways of understanding the scripture. And please, I would be happy to have a continuing conversation if you would like to have that. But I promised to get us to the beginning of marriage, so let me do that briefly, and then we'll try to wrap things up. Let's go back one more time to verse 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. 
If you've ever been to a traditional Jewish or Christian wedding, you've likely heard the officiant say in their most solemn clergy voice, marriage is an institution ordained by God. What that means is marriage is God's idea. And, and it was God's idea from the very beginning. It's the idea of, a, of an intimate, exclusive, permanent relationship between a husband and a wife. And that intimacy, naked and felt no shame, that, that permanence, that, that exclusivity, leaving and cleaving in the old King James language, that permanence become one flesh, that provides the, the safety and security for, for two people to give themselves fully and freely to one another without fear of abandonment or critique or exploitation. It provides a stable, loving environment for children to be brought and launched into the world. And when marriage works, as God intended to, it's a beautiful thing. Did you catch the news this past week or so about uh, former President Jimmy and Rosalind Carter? celebrating their 77th wedding anniversary. We love stories like that. The newscasters could hardly contain their wonder and, and downright giddiness as they announced it. Because we want to know that, that, that love can last, that, that people can be faithful, that, that romance doesn't have to fade. Now, I know marriage doesn't always go that way. And it can be a source of great pain and a heartache. And even a marriage of 77 years, I'm sure, had its struggles and its, and its woundings and its ups and downs. But even with the struggles, recent survey of married people, 86% of them say they are happy they got married. The possibility of lifelong companionship and intimacy and partnership and childbearing, surely one of God's good gifts to humankind. So that's the historic Christian understanding of marriage, a lifelong union between a man and a woman. It's what we teach and it's what we practice. It's what we call people to here at Grace. So we're not an affirming church in that sense of the word. But we do recognize that gay marriage is a civil right in our country and that some Christians understand the Bible to allow for same-sex marriage, for gay marriage. We respect their freedom to hold that belief and to make those decisions. And we welcome gay people and gay couples to seek and follow Jesus with us, and some do. So all this I know presents a great challenge for a gay person who is seeking to follow Christ. Based on our understanding of, of, of marriage and sexual intimacy, a gay Christian's called to a life of sexual celibacy, as an unmarried heterosexual would be, or to a heterosexual marriage. As challenging as both those paths sound, many LGBT plus Christians have have found God's grace to embrace those life experiences and find deep joy and lasting and fulfilling relationships. Last year, I was on a panel up at Gordon-Conwell Seminary with, with a couple of gay Christian people. We were talking about these things. One of them was Wesley Hill. He's a single gay Christian who's written a book entitled Washed and Waiting. 
in which he talks about the rich and good, satisfying life God has granted to him, and in which he invites gay and straight believers into deep and satisfying friendship with each other. The other was Rebecca McLaughlin, local Christian author and scholar. She describes herself as a same-sex attracted woman, happily married to a man for the past 20 years or so. But like Wesley, she goes on to affirm the beauty and the power of deep friendship and non-sexual intimacy with people of the same and opposite sex. In fact, she points out that according to Jesus, and this, this caught me by surprise, the highest form of, highest experience of love available to human being is not sexual intimacy. It's not marriage. It's not parenthood. It's friendship. What did Jesus say? Greater love has no one than this, that if one lays down his life for their friends. The highest form of love. What a remarkable thought. And friendship, that kind of love, is available to everyone in unlimited quality. What would it look like if the church became known as a place of friendship? What if Christians were known for being the best friend an LGBTQ person could possibly have? I know we have a long way to go to get there. And we have a lot to repent of for how we have treated people over many, many decades and even centuries. But by God's grace, it sounds like a worthy and Christ-like vision. Now, just yesterday, I was reviewing my notes here and going over this particular point. And it suddenly occurred to me that my journey on all of these things began with a friendship many, many years ago. In my early years as a pastor, a young father started visiting our church. Greg was a divorced dad with two young kids who he brought with him every other week. He was a carpenter by trade, super fit, handsome, big smile, likable, but he was kind of a mystery man. No one knew much about Greg. And he didn't give much away. But he liked my preaching, and we both liked breakfast. So every once in a while, he'd say, let's have breakfast. And we meet at a local diner and we talk over the sermon and, and, and life. And, but when I asked him, whenever I asked him to talk about his life and his faith journey, he would just smile a big smile and say, that's a story for another day. We did that for a year or two. Till one day after breakfast, he said, could we go back to the church for a little while? I said, sure. So we went back to the empty church. He asked me to sit in one of the pews and he walked up to the platform, got behind our big Baptist pulpit, and he told me his life story, a pretty dramatic story, including how he came to find himself attracted to boys as a 12-year-old, and how for, for years he tried to shake it, tried to fake it, tried to make it, but in the end, he just he couldn't. So his marriage broke up, he found himself adrift, spiritually and otherwise. It was the height of the AIDS epidemic. He was terrified of getting AIDS, of losing friends. But mostly, he was afraid of telling people like me because he'd grown up in the church and he loved Jesus, but he was afraid he'd be kicked out if anyone knew. Remember, this is 40 years ago. People were not talking about these things at church. Not in any, well, took him almost an hour to tell the story. And when he was done, we were both in tears. 
I went up to the platform and hugged them and told them that no one was going to kick him out of this church. And I think that was the day I decided that any church I was going to be part of was going to include people like Greg and anyone who was wanting to seek and follow Jesus, no matter what the rest of their life looked like. Now, to make a long story longer, Greg kept coming to church and we kept having breakfast. From time to time, he'd disappear for a while. And then he'd, but he'd always come back and we'd pick up where he left, where we left off. Eventually, we moved to Boston and he moved to Florida. In the 25 years since, we've hardly seen each other, but we call each other out of the blue a couple times a year. And a few years ago, he actually came up to visit us for a little bit. I still don't know a lot about his life, about his relationships, but I know he's going to church and I know he loves Jesus. My friendship with Greg is one of God's good gifts to me and to him. And I will be forever glad that God prompted me to make room in my heart and our church for Greg, for anyone who wants to seek and follow Jesus. And I want Grace Chapel to be that kind of a church too. Well, we've kept this conversation going long enough and you have a lot to process. I know I'm over time. If you can't go over time on sex, I mean, I don't know. But here's what I hope you remember and take away. From the beginning, human beings have been designed for intimate, honorable, life-giving relationships that lead us closer to God and each other. Friendship, sexuality, marriage are good gifts from a good God. The other thing I hope you'll take away is that whoever you are and however you identify, if you are interested in seeking and following Jesus, we would be happy. We would be honored if you'd make that journey with us. So we would like to offer a couple of opportunities for further conversation. So the first one is for anyone who would identify as an LGBT plus person. Now, if you're an LGBT ally, that's great, but this conversation's not for you. It's not for family members. This is a confidential gathering for anyone, student, child, adult, who, who identifies as LGBT plus. I'm gonna be there along with a couple of other pastors, and our main purpose will simply be to listen and understand and learn how we might come alongside you on your faith journey. It's gonna happen this Tuesday night, seven o'clock at our adult learning center over at Two Militia Drive. And be happy to have you there. If, if you're a family member of an LGBT person, the following Tuesday night, the October 24th, we'll have a gathering for family members, seven o'clock adult learning center. Again, a couple of pastors and I will be there and our main purpose will be simply to listen and learn and understand how we can come alongside your family at this particular time. So you can find the details of those gatherings either on our app or on our website. Uh, at uh, grace.org slash JRL. I also put there a list of resources, many of which I used in preparing the sermon if you'd like to do a little more work. So I wanna thank you for graciously and attentively entering into this conversation today. And again, anything you're struggling with, feeling hurt by, we would love to continue the conversation. Please reach out to me, Brian with a Y at grace.org. Why don't we pray together?
thank you, Lord, for a safe place and time to talk about these things, to process our questions and longings and bring them before you and before each other. We thank you for these good gifts of friendship and sexuality and marriage. Lord, for those of us who are enjoying these gifts these days, we pray that we would steward them well in ways that bless the people around us. Lord, I do pray for those who've been hurt or disappointed or might find themselves struggling in these areas. I pray for, for help and for healing and, and hope for better things to come. For all of us, Lord, we pray that these longings and struggles will lead us into a deep and life-giving relationship with you, the lover of our souls. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.